0: Well, good evening, everybody, or good afternoon, or good morning, depending on when you're watching this. If you're checking it out on Right Now Media, we're in the midst of our series on confronting Christianity, easy for me to say, and being able to take those challenging questions that um, are often posed for us, or even the questions that we have ourselves, the things that we struggle with as we wrestle with a life of faith. There's a reason they call it faith, because um, if it was absolute certainty, it wouldn't require any faith. At all. And we've got a great guide who's been with us for this journey, Rebecca McLaughlin, who um, who I try to say that every time, like I've got a fake Irish accent or something along those lines, like Sarah McLaughlin, um, who sings like an angel, by the way, even though she's a little quirky. Um, so we're uh, glad, Rebecca, to have you with us. Not calling you quirky, calling Sarah McLaughlin quirky. Just ignore no,
1: claiming that I sing like an angel, I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're gonna have a little, you know, kind of. Uh, maybe we should put a little contest in there for what songs that Rebecca and I should do as a spontaneous duet. Uh, you could put that in the chat if you want to have a little, um, a little fun with that.
1: Yeah, sing, we, singing over Zoom. I think we've all learned at this point is a really bad idea.
0: It really is not the same thing at all, especially as congregational singing and as many of us long to be in church together. Rebecca, thanks for being uh, back with us. Um, to some degree, all of us are kind of a product of the people who have poured into us, invested in us, come alongside us, and so significant away. Who are some of the people who've kind of influenced you in your in your life of faith that that you came they came alongside you and poured into you?
1: You know, so many answers to that question. Uh, but one person I mentioned it was the the pastor of the church that I went to when I was an undergrad and then a grad student at Cambridge University in the UK. And I think the things that I most profoundly learned from him, and he was, you know, it was a decently large church, but he, he was very good at kind of being engaged with folks on, a, on an individual level. And I'll never forget, for example, the time when I was part of our sort of university um, outreach, I had invited some non-Christian friends to dinner and he was gonna come and share the gospel with us, with the group. And I called him that afternoon and I said, Mark, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed, but only one of my friends is actually coming tonight. And he said, fantastic. That sounds great. Like, can't wait to be there. And, and right. didn't at all make me feel like, you know, why aren't there 15? He was right. delighted to share the gospel with my kind of druggy uh, friend, Charlie, <laughs> who, who bless his heart showed up. Um, but the things that I appreciated about Mark in particular, and the things that, that I t- even today, you know, I find linger in my mind, were well, things like him saying um, when the senior pastor of, of the other big church in town uh, left his wife for a younger man, um, mm. his response to that and the church's response to that wasn't, Oh my goodness, like that could never, something like that could never happen here. The church's response was uh, we should sit down with Mark and look through his diary with him, make sure he's spending enough time with his wife, sort of assume that our pastor as well is the sort of person who could, um, end up in, in disqualifying sin and when this uh, pastor Mark was was dying of cancer a few years ago uh, one of the things he said he'd send out emails to, to those of us who were at the church who used to be uh, sort of updating on his progress his because he knew he was dying of cancer for a few months and one of the things that he said was I'm really glad that it seems like I'm going to get to the end of, of my um, sort of ministry career without massively disgracing the name of christ by some disqualified like publicly disqualifying sin and and that just stuck with me because i I think any of us well any christian frankly but but certainly in particular any of us in any kind of public ministry are only inches away from disqualifying like major public sin Um, and and we're best to to live with that knowledge rather than Trying to pretend to ourselves or anybody else that, that that's not true of us. Um, yeah,
0: quite often we we look at the more spectacular sins that people struggle with and we secretly harbor a sense of self-righteousness of, well, at least I'm not that, when not realizing that the fault line of that lies within all of us.
1: Yeah, yeah. And your your sin may look different than mine, but um if if we're not very aware of the fact that we could be knocked off course, um then we probably aren't going to get to the end of, of our sort of ministry lives uh, without having um, having done something like that. Even, you know, whether or not people find out, I think, is, is the, other, the other thing. Um, and yeah, Mark just had a very, uh, he was in some ways a very kind of um, strong leader um, and not a kind of retiring personality. But at the same time, he was always very... Uh, real about um, his own sin, uh, his expectation of the sin of others, frankly, as well. Um, And one of the things he said to to us, um, I'm sure in general, that it landed with me in particular, was as you go on in the Christian life, you probably won't feel like you're just getting more and more holy. You know, look at me, I'm so much better than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago as, as you get older. He said that the evidence that you're growing as a Christian is actually that you become more aware of your sin. And, and I found that super, super helpful, because honestly, you know, probably many of us, when we were 20, if we're not 20 anymore, we just didn't know. We, we, we weren't even aware of, of the extent of us. And so uh, I feel like I'm sort of banging on the same theme again and again here. But um, yeah, some of the things that, that he said that really formed me were along those lines of recognizing, um day to day as we grow older as we go on in ministry as we go on and witnessing to friends whatever it is that we sh- would never we never arrive we never are or should be preaching a gospel of us there's only one hero and it's Jesus mm-hmm. um and the rest of us are, are, are moral failures who need him every day and and who without his mercy um would be entirely in the pit
0: yeah yeah, the categorical difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit um, and the redemption of Christ. Not that, uh, you know, as it says in the Old Testament, because you were more numerous or you were stronger or you were better than other people, but because it's because of God's grace that, mm-hmm. um, that we would be any that we would be any different. Um, it reminds me of the conversation C.S. Lewis one time had in a pub. I don't know if it was at the Bird and the Baby. Um, but where there was uh, a, a friend of Lewis and his drinking companion that was um, uh, that was not a Christian, and Lewis is a Christian, and they were talking about a mutual friend who is a Christian, who is uh, spectacularly uh, bad on a, a couple of subjects, and how the waitress that they had was, uh, was so delightful, and the non-Christian turned to the waitress and said, you know, Hey, are you a Christian? Because you're a perfectly delightful person, and our friend is not, and and he is a Christian. And she said, No, I'm not a believer. And so, as she was walking away, this man smugly said to Lewis, You know, um, see, she's not a Christian, and your friend is, and they're they're just they're different from one another. One's better than the other. And he's like, No, you're missing the point. Imagine how bad my friend would be, right, if he didn't have Jesus. <laughs> So we do need sometimes a reset on perspective um, and God is not grading uh, on a curve. We are, um, we have a fantastic question tonight. Anybody who wants to throw in any questions uh, you know, in our Q and a or make some comments in the chat, feel free to do so, make this interactive uh, tonight. And um, we're going to be tackling the question of how can you possibly say that there is one true faith and that specifically it would be, um, Christianity, um, and so let me pose the first question to you, Rebecca, which is: Many people today think it's wrong to try to persuade somebody to consider the truth of Jesus. What do you What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting how people approach this this question today because I think uh, certainly folks in my generation were very much raised on a diet of, of relativism, whether we use you know, that that term or not. But this idea that you know it's fine for you to be a Christian. And it's fine for our friend over here to be Jewish, it's fine for our friend over here to be Hindu or Muslim or, or of no particular belief or a strident atheist. Um, and it's, in, it's at best in really poor taste and at worst a kind of um, offensive denial of someone else's identity, especially if they come from a, um, you know, what's perceived as a non-Western uh, religious tradition or, or a minority religious tradition where we live it's like frankly offensive to to try to persuade someone um, to put their trust in Jesus, to to convert to another religion. And I think the the, the mental backdrop that people have when they say that is um, the times and the ways in which Christians have have sometimes used Christianity as a sort of vehicle for imposing our culture on other people, um, whatever our culture is. but there, there, are two, and that, you know, there, there are many ways in which, in times in which Christians have really messed up in, in that respect. So I, I think we, we kind of need to bear that in mind as we enter into these conversations. I think that there, there are multiple problems with, with the idea that it's, it's ultimately offensive to try to persuade somebody to change their beliefs. There. And one is that if we truly respect somebody as a, as a thinking person, as a person with real agency over, over what they believe and the, the ability to decide, um, then of course we would try to persuade them. And if, if I'm relating to a Muslim friend, I say, oh, you know, my Muslim friend, uh, she was raised Muslim and this is her cultural background and therefore she couldn't possibly ever think outside of that. I'm actually being quite condescending to my Muslim friend or if I say to a Jewish friend, you know, he was he was raised Jewish and um, he really just believes what, what his parents told him to believe and it would just be kind of unkind of me to to shatter his delusions um, or, or to, to bring him, you know, to try to sort him of something different. I'm actually not respecting my friend's intelligence or, or agency, ironically. It sort of feels, it can feel like a respectful thing to say, well, all religions are actually equal, but in fact it's quite disrespectful. What it translates into is us not actually taking the beliefs of any one religion seriously. And and if we look even just at the, the three um, major world religions that are most similar to each other. So Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam, you know, often known as the great monotheistic religions. Uh, even if we look at, at those three, we find that there are fundamentally irreconcilable differences and not just on the fringes, but actually right at the center. I right mean, before. Christians yeah. believe that, that Jesus was crucified and three days later was raised to life again. Um, Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists, for that matter, believe that, that Jesus died and, and stayed dead. And, and Muslims believe that Jesus didn't die, but seemed to. And so this is this is a historical claim that's being made. And and even the three religions that are closest to each other in terms of at least some of the foundational beliefs in it, in one created God, for example, fundamentally disagree about a historical event. And so we're actually not taking anyone seriously if we say that mm-hmm. um, you know both Christians, Christians, Jews, and Muslims are all, all right on this question. And and if we do, if if we if we are so committed to believing that Christians, Jews, and Muslims must all be right, that, then what we're actually ultimately doing is is tearing apart our ability to make any historical truth claims about anything. Right. Um, because even if I could say to a Jewish or or a Muslim friend, you know hey, clearly none of us can go back 2,000 years with a video camera and, and you know, prove beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus was or wasn't raised from the dead, we can all agree that either he was raised or he wasn't. Like it, right. It's not a, a both and because the Christian claims that Jesus was, was bodily raised from the dead. And so um, if, if we say, well, actually, these three major world religions are all correct on this question, we can't make other historical truth claims. For example, we can't say that the Holocaust really happened and that this is just, this is a bare, a brute fact and not a matter of opinion that we could agree to disagree about. Um, We can't look back at the history of slavery in America and say, you know what, over 3 million African people were transported by British slave traders and, and kept as slaves in America. Like, we, we, we can't make statements like that and say, you know what, this is actually true rather than just, you know, my opinion versus your opinion. Um, so, I think those, those are some of the problems with this, this idea that, that we, you know, it's, we can't say that one religion is, is true or try to persuade somebody else to change their beliefs. And then I think that the, the other big problem with that idea is that um, if Christianity is true, then not trying to persuade somebody to put their trust in Jesus. is profoundly unkind. Um, I don't know if folks saw the the film Titanic, um, so It must be a, a good twenty years old at this point, but absolutely spectacular film. Um, and and at I one I think we point have found in, the
0: song that you're going to sing for us. You're going. I'm not gonna you, going to sing. I'll spare you. I'll spare
1: you the song. Um, <laughs> But those of you who've seen the film might might remember that there's this point at which um, Rose uh, and Jack, the main characters have, they know that this massive boat has hit an iceberg. Um, and they go and talk to the guy who, who designed the boat in the first place. Um, and they say, you know, Rose says to him, like, tell me the truth, is, is this boat, boat gonna sink? And he says, yes, it is. Um, and then he says, remember what I told you about the lifeboats that had an earlier conversation where um, she knew that there weren't enough lifeboats for everybody on the ship. He said, remember what I told you about the lifeboats? He said, tell only who you must. So, you know, you don't want to tell everyone because everyone might try and jump into a lifeboat. There aren't aren't enough lifeboats. Now, how cruel would it be of Rose to not tell people if she knew that the ship is going down and that their only hope of being saved is getting on a lifeboat? Very cruel. Even if they thought she was crazy for saying this, even, you know, everyone's like the, the musicians are still playing their instruments, people are still drinking tea and enjoying themselves, but the ship is going down. And it, it's, it's unkind not to try and persuade people that that's true. But then the fundamental difference with Christianity is, is Jesus is the lifeboat and there's room for everyone. And we're not just told, only tell you you must. He says, go and tell everyone. Mm
0: mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great analogy from from that movie. You're right; my teenagers probably haven't seen it because it's too old, but but I have. And uh, um, there's a famous analogy that uh, that you bring up. Um, I think its origin is originally a Hindu story or an Indian story. You talk about the blind men and the elephant. Can you explain mm-hmm. that and how 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 that tends to kind of get at the heart of this: is there really one truth? Question.
1: Yeah, so, so for those who don't know this story, it's, it's kind of a parable, and, and it runs something like this. Um, there was Once upon a time, there was a, a town or a village which only consisted of blind people. And one day, an elephant walked into this village. And one guy went up to the elephant and, and felt the elephant's trunk and said, Oh, you know, this elephant is, is um, like a, a, a snake. And the next guy came up and he felt one of the elephant's legs. And he said, no, this elephant's not like a snake. This elephant is like a tree. Uh, somebody else comes up and feels one of them, the elephant's tail and says, no, 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 this this, this thing is like a, a rope. Um, and someone else comes up and feels the elephant's uh, ear and says, oh, no, no, you're, you're all wrong. This is this thing is is like a fan. And, and in the story, you kind of see that all these people were holding on to a different part of this extraordinary creature and they were sure that what they believed was right. And they couldn't see that actually, if we put all these different pieces together, we get an elephant. And so the the analogy is different religious traditions are are bringing different elements of the truth about God to the table. And if we can just piece them all together, then we have some hope of of seeing God in all this glory. But there are a couple of problems with, with this analogy. The first is that in order for, for the story to work, you and I have to be able to see. Mm-hmm. And we're we're basically saying anyone from you know, any representative of one of the major world religions is like the blind person who, who can't actually see the big picture. And we can see the big picture. So it, it seems at first to be a humble approach. It's actually, again, quite arrogant. And the other the other big problem with this picture and with any analysis of of world religions that, that claims that all religions are equally true or that they're different paths to the same destination, or you know, imagine a mountain with God at the top and different religions are coming up from different angles. All of these things break down when you come to Jesus. Uh, Jesus was never claiming to be a representation of God or one way back into relationship with God. Mm-hmm he makes completely outrageous claims about himself which either are true in which case he is the creator god in the flesh or are false in which case we shouldn't be listening to him and and jesus's universal claims and not least after his death and resurrection saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me so go and make disciples of all nations um all the ways in which, I mean, people sometimes say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> have, you, have you read the Gospels? Jesus claims time and again to be God, but he does so in, in a whole host of, of different ways. Um, he's the one who has the authority to forgive sins when his Jewish hearers knew for a while that only God had the authority to forgive sins. He can calm a storm and his disciples are thinking, wait, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? He is, I was writing this afternoon about Jesus being the bridegroom, taps into the Old Testament picture of God as as a faithful husband in Israel, as his often unfaithful wife. Um, Time and time again, Jesus makes exclusive universal claims. And if we're followers of Jesus, we must believe that, or else we're not actually following him at all.
0: Wow. um, you, You often hear the objection today, um, and there's been a, a philosophical shift in society where it's not just that no religion, you know, you, know, you know, has the truth, but there is no such thing as objective truth anymore, kind of this late modern or postmodern kind of argument. The classic example is the, the baseball umpire where um, a pre-modern umpire gets thrown a pitch and says, you know, I call them as they are the modern umpire says I call them as I see them and then the postmodern umpire says they ain't nothing until I call them uh so in this late modernity it's like nothing really exists in objective truth when when you're dealing with this question of you know kind of pluralism and can there really be a truth how do you respond to that hey there's just not even objective truth on anything
1: I think honestly people are just selective about where they apply that principle
0: can't literally live that way can you
1: You can't live that way, and I mean, you can't live that way when it comes to questions of of science, for example. You know, people don't say, well, gravity is true for you, but it's not true for me, um, and then jump out of a window like that. we We know there are certain things that are sort of, as Neil deGrasse Tyson puts it, true whether or not you believe in it. But there are even things today that people believe in as objective, fundamental truth. For example, that racism is wrong. I have many friends who, who firmly believe that racism is wrong, and that's not a question of kind of my opinion versus, versus yours, but it's just a moral fact, or that rape is wrong, or that women are fundamentally equal to men. Um, and the, the fact is, none of those assertions have any legs without Christianity. I mean, it's actually Christianity that's kind of give, given us the basis for, for making those kinds of claims. And if we say that we don't believe in objective truth, then we also can't say that we believe that racism is wrong or that rape is wrong. We can only, we can express this as, as a preference or as our opinion, but we can't say that it is a, a universal truth to which all human beings should be held accountable. And so I think, whereas it's true that when it comes to religious questions, people often take a kind of postmodern or relativistic view and are comfortable saying, you know, your religion is your religion, that's fine, just don't sort of bother me with it. When it comes to, to questions which they see as, as matters of real importance, most secular folk today are actually quite convinced that there is such a thing as objective truth.
0: Yeah, you say that one of your professors um, actually helped you to understand that there's a difference between respecting another person's kind of Uh, beliefs versus respecting them as a person. Why was that so important of a distinction for you?
1: I think it's super important. This guy is a delightful Old Testament scholar who's sort of, I think, about six foot five and and extremely slender, sort of a very towering presence, but a very gentle and kind and humble man. And I remember him standing up in, in class one day and saying, people say you should respect other people's beliefs. He said, that's rubbish. You should respect other people. And I I do think it's an important distinction Mm -hmm. because often when people say you should respect other people's beliefs, what they mean is you should never challenge other people's beliefs. And actually, as I was saying earlier, if you truly respect another person, you absolutely will challenge their beliefs and you'll expect them to challenge your beliefs. And that that will be a conversation that you'll have. Right. But sometimes we we kind of fall on, on either side. Sometimes we don't respect other people's beliefs and we actually treat them disrespectfully. And unkindly right. and aggressively or on the other hand we know that we ought to respect somebody and so we sort of respect their beliefs and um, sort of tiptoe around them and, and won't ever ask challenging questions or, or try to um, you know, bring the, the truth of the gospel to them because we're kind of afraid of not respecting their their beliefs and you know, the fact is people believe all sorts of stupid things right. all sorts of crazy things i mean we christians believe all sorts of crazy things uh, we we happen to have good reason to believe that they're true. Um, but I, I don't know that I want my friends to respect my beliefs. I, I want them to take them seriously and I want them to um be willing to engage on them. But I don't I don't require them to respect my beliefs just because they're my beliefs.
0: Yeah. And it's it's challenging to do that today in today's environment, in particular because. As what Tim Keller talks about, he said truth for most of human history was considered to be out there somewhere that we're all trying to discover, and now many people feel like that the only truth that is found is within. And so, when you do challenge somebody else's beliefs, it's like there's nothing left of, of themselves or their identity because it's mm-hmm. an idol. There's nothing left of them anymore once you've challenged uh, those beliefs, and so. Feelings are something to be managed on the outside, and yet truth is inside, is kind of that postmodern belief. And it's why you can't have, many times, a rational conversation about a difference in beliefs without it getting to the point of somebody feeling like their identities being absolutely called into question.
1: Yeah, and I think we, we need to take heed of that for ourselves as well.
0: Mm-hmm. The fact
1: is, all of us. It, we're, we're more driven emotionally than, than rationally, actually, however smart we may think that we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we all have a sort of default setting, which is basically tribal, and which says, you know, my people believe this, and and I, I won't listen to even the best data or arguments from anybody else. And I think as Christians, we can, even if we have the, the, the central trees of the Christian faith rightly well lodged within our hearts, as, as I hope that we do, we can be quite intractable on other questions where we really should have listened. Mm-hmm. And so I think trying to cultivate, even within us, or especially within ourselves, a, a posture of, of humility and a willingness to revise our thinking on things. And that's what we're expecting our friends who are not believers to do. And so I think we should be equally willing to have our own beliefs challenged. Absolutely. Um, and, and to be willing to sort of. Examine some of the assumptions that that we've made that may may honestly be much more to do with our culture and our tribe than they are to do with the the truth of the scriptures or of um, Jesus' Revelation to us
0: Yeah, many Christians um, today are threatened by by that process um, And many Christians today are intimidated to share their faith because they're going to be seen as belligerent or kind of intolerant um, uh, could you have any advice for how to navigate those shark-infested waters today?
1: Yeah, I think front-foot humility and mm-hmm. love. And humility doesn't mean not seriously believing what we mean, what we believe. Nor does it mean not trying to actually argue for, for what we believe and trying to persuade others. Um, but it does mean coming in with a with a truly humble posture. Um, I try to do that. I'm sure I fail many, many times. Um, But about this time last year, I was visiting a a church in um, Columbia, Missouri to speak on questions around gender and sexuality. And someone in the local community had sort of challenged me over Twitter, um, or or had said about me, I don't know that she was expecting me to read it necessarily, but it said, uh, you know, my PhD is in English literature, I'm clearly not qualified to speak on these questions. And I was like, you know, fair enough. I I replied and I said, you know, you're probably right. Um, You know, I'm even less qualified to speak on science, which is the other thing I was thinking about. Uh, I'd love to get coffee with you and and learn from your experiences. Um, And so I I think to, again, I'm sure I I fail much more often than I succeed in in my own life on this, but but those moments where we're kind of tempted to go into defensive mode Mm -hmm. and to say, oh, this person's like, saying something that's unfair about me or challenging my, um, you know, my expertise or whatever it is, to almost flip the script in that and say, yeah, you know, I'm probably not as smart as I think I am. um, And I'm certainly not as good as I think I am. Again, the the pastor of the church I was mentioning earlier, where I was a student, he used to say, you know, don't worry too much. If, If people say bad things about you that aren't true, don't worry about it. There are other bad things about you, probably worse things that are true. So, <laughs> so don't get too invested in defending your reputation. Um, Let people say what they want to say, but but you know, trying to not give people too much cause to say bad things about us and to be willing to acknowledge when we're wrong, um, to be willing to to apologize when we've behaved badly. Um, and and that's gonna be a struggle for all of us actually, to to have a genuine posture of humility as we approach others.
0: That's good. We're going to start to take some questions from people who have uh, chimed in. We got one that just came in. It says, what's, are there any differences or what's the Jewish or Muslim or Hindu response to the assertion that there's only one true religion and that it's, you know, that it might be Christianity?
1: I mean, it very much depends on, on the individual that you're talking to, and, and just as within, um, you know, the, the group of people who would identify as Christians, um, there's the full range of, you know, full-blooded, Bible-believing, gospel-hearted evangelists on the one hand, to, you know, folks who would actually say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I equally believe that that the Hindus have access, you know, the same kind of access to God. So, so just as with within folks who would identify as Christians, there's a huge range. So within folks who would identify as Jewish or Muslim, there, there's a huge range as well. Um, I, I do think if we look at a, at a global level, and we talked about this either last week or the week before, the the big question for the next generation is not how soon will religion die out, but Christianity or Islam, and the the full-blooded claims of of Islam are you know are being um, voiced globally. Almost as vigorously as the, the full-blooded claims of, of Christianity, um, and so I would say they both, many Christians and and many Muslims would would hold firmly to a, you could call it a kind of exclusivist view. Now, now Hindus are a whole different kettle of fish in the sense that
0: polytheism um, will do that to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, that there is well, it's complicated because Hinduism is the, the the religion most located in one specific country mm-hmm. um, so there's a strong overlap at the moment between hinduism and, and indian nationalism um, and so you know i'm sure there are folks uh, within, within that world who, who would want to strongly assert that hinduism is, is true and every other religion is false but i think that's as much bound up with with nationalism as is their faith um, and you know but to kind of lift that mirror up to our own eyes, often what Christians say ends up being as much bound up with nationalism as as it is with our own faith as well. So,
0: um,
1: you know, we need to be a little bit humble on that front as well.
0: Absolutely. These are gonna bounce around a couple of ones are um, gonna bounce in from a variety of different topics, but you may be able to see how they potentially tie in. Um, One is, and this uh, this is a challenging one, is there a way to be neutral about abortion? As a Christian. Um, And if I'm not neutral about abortion, is it okay to be a member of a church that might be neutral or in a different position than mine?
1: Yeah. There are there are some moral stances that Christians have basically taken from the first. Uh, And one is that babies are actually precious and human precious human beings rather than possessions. And it's interesting in the, the Greco Roman world that Christianity was birthed into, this was not the assumption at all. Correct it was very it was perfectly normal to leave your newborn baby out to die, especially if they were the, they were a girl. Uh, huge numbers of, of baby girls left and uh, abandoned. And you know, maybe they'd die, maybe they'd be picked up by someone who wanted to raise them as a slave. Who cares? But like my possession I can I can put my baby out on the street just as I would, you know, in Cambridge we really often Christians stood against that, and actually, Jesus's attitude towards children um, and babies was quite surprising um, in the first century uh, context that that he was, um, he was living in. And I think this is one of the, the question: Can Christians be neutral on abortion? Um, I would say absolutely not. If we look both at the scripture and if, and if we look at Christian history, this is something on which Christians have been pretty consistent and clear from the first. Now, I think there are other, there, there are related and important questions, which I'm sure is sort of beneath the surface here in terms of like, who do you vote for, um, you know, in, in elections that may not be coming up soon. Um, and I think and I say this as someone who is not an American citizen, nor, you know, nor voting, um, nor has any kind of particular horse in the race, as it were. Um, it seems to me that neither party right now is offering a consistently Christian ticket. And so whichever party people as a Christian choose to vote for or choose not to vote, which I think is also a valid option, they should also be strongly protesting the pieces of what's being offered that are clearly against Christianity. Um, and so if if the question is about, you know, neutrality on abortion, I mean, I don't think we can be because I, either we consider unborn babies to be fully human persons or we don't, there, that's sort of an either or. And, I, and as I say, I think the consistent witness of Christians over the last 2000 years has been that they are fully human and um, should be given the rights that, that other humans are given. Um, at the same time, you know, we're in a kind of contextual space where we, we need to equally apply Christian ethics across the board. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. There's another question here that, um, and we do have um, next week, our topic is how can you take the Bible literally? So this, this might kind of be a teaser for next week. If, if a non-believer were to ask you why you believe Jesus rose from the dead, how would you answer the question? And is there a way that you can give a reason... Um, without referring to the narrative?
1: Without referring to the gospels?
0: The biblical narratives, yeah.
1: Um, I think we can make a very convincing case that Jesus existed, that he um, was claimed by some to be the Messiah, and that it was claimed that he had risen from the dead, and was being early on worshiped as a god from sources outside the Bible. Um, in fact, Bart Ehrman, he's a well-known sort of critic of, of Christian interpretations of the scriptures of The New Testament um, scholar down at uh, Duke University, no, no, UNC Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, he says like, it's patently obvious, like even atheist scholars will agree that Jesus existed. So there are some, some basic building blocks about Jesus that we don't depend on the New Testament for at all. At the same time, to not consider what are clearly the four most relevant historical documents when it comes to Jesus in answering the question of whether he was raised from the dead seems sort of obtuse. Um, I think there are various strands of evidence that we can pursue if we look at that question. Um, One of which, just to sort of pick one of of many, is the bizarre phenomenon that in in each of the, the gospel accounts, it's women who first witnessed the resurrection. And, and that just sort of washes over us. Doesn't, we don't notice it at all. But uh, in the first century context, if you were trying to come up with a, a really plausible, like a crazy but story that you wanted people to believe, the last thing you would say is that it was women who witnessed it. It would be like today, if you wanted to make some completely outlandish claim and you said, well, yeah, a few kids told me that they saw this thing. Uh-huh. Like, well... <laughs> That's not very convincing, easily dismissed. Um, and so I think in some ways, the, the sheer um, implausibility of the gospel accounts in, in their first century context actually makes them quite plausible to me. Um, people, I mean, this is, I, I could go on a great length about this. I'm not sure how to sort of condense it into, into one sentence. There's a very interesting book written a few years ago by um, a guy called Richard Borkum. He's a world-class New Testament scholar. Um, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And and he's looking at the Gospels in terms of, and presenting evidence that that they are in fact eyewitness, either direct eyewitness accounts, which is what he believes about John's Gospel, interestingly the last one to be written down, or in the case of the other Gospels, written by people who had meticulously consulted with eyewitnesses, and that they name eyewitnesses along the way as they write. Um, And so there's a very strong case to be made that the Gospels are actually Valid, very valid historical documents by any reasonable historical measure, um, and so should should be taken very seriously. Um, and then, you know, amongst other things, we have the phenomenon of of the early church. How, where on earth did it come from? <laughs> um, it, it was so against all expectations that this little group of followers of this. You know, supposed messiah who was crucified like other messiah other messiah claimants had been before him and before afterwards actually right. Jesus wasn't the first person to be crucified for claiming to be the messiah but what usually happened if the kind of messiah claimant was crucified is that either everyone goes home and sort of says oh well never mind or they try to shift the messiah role to somebody else maybe their brother or the cousin you know somebody they sort of try to find a new messiah candidate and neither of these things happened with Jesus. Instead, there was the completely bizarre claim that he risen from the dead, um, and the the outlandishness of that, and the results that it produced, both in the first century and sort of echoing down to us now across the world, um, are quite extraordinary. So I think, whereas for sure the Jesus resurrection is is a truly crazy claim. I don't think it's actually um, one without evidence. And, and and if if there is a God who made the universe, then it is not crazy to think that he could have raised Jesus from the dead. Um, so sometimes I think we we have a, you know, people find themselves in this place saying, yeah, you know, I, could, I, I think I believe in God, but the idea of Jesus' resurrection seems, you know, that's too much for me to believe. I'm like, actually, rationally if you believe in a God who created the universe it's there's no rational logical problem with believing that Jesus was born of a virgin and that Mm -hmm. he was raised from the dead
0: yeah well Rebecca that's a great kind of entree into next week and uh when we're going to be talking about the can you really take the bible literally and uh a great subject that's worth worth exploring thank you so much for giving us your time and uh your thoughtfulness on these really tricky questions and Whether you're listening to this on Right Now Media or whether you're kind of exploring this uh, through the webinar in a group, uh, we hope that you're blessed by the conversation. Hope you get to go deeper into your own discussions and exploration. And uh, let me close this tonight with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Thank you, God, for the incredible wisdom and revelation that is available to each and every one of us Mm -hmm. in the mystery of the curiosity and the questions of life. Thank you that you're a God of questions and that you love when we get to explore and probe and wonder. And we pray that God, all of this would take um, our wonder to a deeper place of praise. Mm. And so may people be nurtured by and encouraged by this conversation and their own faith. And I know God that there's bound to be moments where this is really challenging to explore these core questions, but may the unsettling and disruption that happens in those moments take us into the deeper reality of your own presence. And I ask that in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Rebecca, thank you. It's good to be with you. We'll see thank you
1: next you. week. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.